Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Eric. Uh, if I had had the chance to meet you yet, I would love to be able to do that. Uh, I am a pastor in training here um, at City Church. So if you have recently started coming around, just in the last few weeks, um, you have probably noticed that I am not Kent. Uh, <laughs> surprise to all of you. Uh, but I, I do get the opportunity like every six-ish weeks uh, or so to get up here and, and talk with you guys. So if you just started coming around, welcome. Uh, this is not as out of the ordinary as it may seem to you. Um, but uh, I am really excited to, to be where we are. So we're in the middle of a series right now uh, when we're talking all about God's design for us and for our gender specifically. And as weighty as, as this series might feel to some people, um, I, I'm really excited to be a part of teaching a few of these weeks because I, I feel like it's a really important conversation. Uh, people are having this conversation all through our society, all through our world, and we as followers of Jesus need to know how to have these conversations in ways that are both helpful and informed. I think we need to be able to do that. Um, so I think that is vital for both those conversations that we're having and also vital for our own discipleship. Um, so I'm just really excited to be a part of helping teach this series. So we often try to quickly catch people up uh, just on, on where we have been for the last couple of weeks and where we're going to be today, just in case you missed last week or you forgot uh, what we talked about or, or any of those things. But I think for this series specifically, it is particularly important. Um, just to make sure that we're all on the same page and what we're talking about. So in the first week of this series, we talked about how our basis for this entire series uh, it rests on our understanding that God is who he says he is and that he can be trusted. That was the whole point. God is who he says he is and that he can be trusted. That is ultimately at the core of everything that we're talking about in the rest of this series. If we trust God, then the logical flow from that would be that we trust what he has to say about us and our lives, uh, including our understanding of gender uh, and our innermost selves. So the most important takeaways uh, from last week uh, was that, that men and women are both equal to each other in value and also distinct from one another. That was a, an important takeaway that we had. We talked about how if we don't understand the, the shared value between men and women, we've actually missed a lot of what the Bible says about us as human beings. So that's really, really important. So we are co-laborers, co-image bearers, co-representatives of God, and we are therefore equal in worth and status in God's kingdom. Right, so we, we spent a chunk of our time last week talking about a lot of the incredibly important similarities uh, between men and women according to God's design. And so today and next week, we're going to be talking a little bit more about and trying to unpack a little bit more of those distinctions between men and women, the differences that exist. So today, we're going to talk about what it does and doesn't mean to be masculine. And then next week, we're going to talk about what it does and doesn't mean to be feminine. 
So, really quickly, I recognize uh, there are quite a few people in this room who are not men. I am very observant in that way. <clears throat> if that is you, I would love to formally invite you to please not tune out. Okay, this is really important. Yes, a lot of what we are going to talk about is specifically for the lives of men. That is true. But I would also argue if you are not a man, odds are pretty good that you know some. I'm just purely on probabilities basis. I, I think I can say that. Uh, so women in the room, as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, I need to remind you, all followers of Jesus have a responsibility to help all followers of Jesus grow into who God has made us to be, right? That is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus with brothers and sisters. So if you are a married woman in the room, uh, this is hopefully going to be helpful for you to be able to walk alongside your husband as he seeks to pursue biblical masculinity. And this will hopefully give you some ideas and tools to help encourage him uh, in ways that he may need it, but also to call him to repentance in areas that he needs to repent. That is something that needs to happen. Um, if you are a single woman in the room, if you, if you hope to one day be married, uh, this, what we're talking about will, will give you some, some helpful lenses, I hope, to see what a potential spouse could and should look like uh, as a follower of Jesus as, as they live out their masculinity. And if marriage is not, uh, not going to be part of your story, uh, there are going to be a lot of fellow believers in your life who are men. And just like I said, as followers of Jesus, we are all a part of each other's walk and journey with Jesus. So the rest of our time today, um, I just want to walk through three components uh, that I think are important to expressing and living in biblical masculinity. Are we ready? Great. I'm going to pray first. That seems important. Uh, I'm going to pray real quick, and then we'll hop in. Uh, God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for uh, the time that we have to, to learn from your word. I pray that you prepare our hearts and our minds uh, to, to hear what you have to say to us, that you would, uh, your spirit would, would just move in us um, and, and that we would grow in our understanding of you and grow in our desire for you and uh, that our lives would continue to be shaped by, by your word uh, more than by the world and that we would be, be able to look more like you every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, here we go. The first component is uh, questioning masculine stereotypes. Questioning masculine stereotypes. I feel like he got super quiet. Like, there's not even, like, not even murmurs. Wow. Cool. All right, this is going to be a good one. <clears throat> so, I think, and I, and I don't feel like I'm alone in this, I think far too often our beliefs about masculinity tend to come from cultural stereotypes rather than the Bible, I think. Um, and oftentimes, uh, you may have experienced this yourself, uh, and you may have recognized it, you may not have. A lot of times, people actually try to endorse some of those stereotypes as, as being biblical concepts without actually doing much work to figure out whether or not they are. But remember, for something to be biblical, it has to come from the Bible. I just want to make sure that we all know that. Uh, I, I think it's also important, it's, it's important to remember sometimes stereotypes 
are based on trends and majorities. That is, that is often where they come from a lot of the time. But that does not make them biblical prescriptions. It doesn't. So I want to take a little Bible journey. I'm going to hop around a little bit. I'm going to make some references, and if you want to know where I get all of them, feel free to look at the PDF of this after the fact. I've got all the references on there, but there's too many for me to just list off and put on the screen. Uh, so I'm going to talk about some masculine stereotypes and, uh, along the way, and I'm, I'm going to see what we can find in Scripture. So I think one stereotype that, that a lot of people uh, hear or say just throughout history is that men are not emotionally sensitive, or like real men are not emotionally sensitive. Uh, men don't cry, right? Men certainly don't weep, right? Men are supposed to suck it up, project strength, be strong. Uh, but here's the problem with that. I feel like it's pretty, uh, pretty evident. All throughout the Old Testament, there are accounts over and over and over again of men crying for a variety of reasons. Not just in grief, not just in pain. They are Examples throughout the Old Testament. And again, it's a lot of references. Feel free to look at this after the fact. Too many to mention, but I will, uh, I will, I will reference one specifically. It's a little more brief from the New Testament. Uh, John 11.35. Anyone familiar with it? What's it say? He did, didn't he? All right? Jesus wept. It's pretty direct. Uh, how about in our culture today, we hear a lot about, uh, at least I, I think we hear a lot about how men are assertive. Right? That's just how men are, how men should be. Uh, men should be outspoken. They should be visionary leaders. That's a sign of masculinity. Well, let's talk about Moses for a second. So Moses was the man who was tasked by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, to confront Pharaoh, and to bring God's people out of oppression. So as soon as God spoke to him and told him what his task was going to be, he responded to God and said that he has, quote, never been eloquent and is slow of speech and tongue. And then he just said, he was like, I can't do that. Absolutely not. I am not, I cannot be in front of people. I cannot talk. I am not assertive. All of those things. A point he continues to make through the early pages of Exodus. If you read through Exodus like four through seven, there are several times where Moses is like, just a reminder, I'm not good at this. Like, I'm not a speaker. Uh, so much so that he actually told God, I cannot do this unless you send Aaron with me to speak on my behalf. So he had to have someone come and speak for him because he was so bad at it. Or how about when Paul, one of the authors the, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, said that he, in one of his letters, he said that he was untrained as a speaker and he was not very good at it. Or, or how about when Isaiah was describing Jesus, with the, the Messiah that was to come, and he said, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And there were at least a few key moments in Jesus' life where he himself was not very assertive. He wasn't. Or maybe, maybe you've heard something along the lines, or you feel this in yourself, uh, the idea that real men will become husbands and fathers. Right? Or maybe that you'll finally move from boyhood to manhood when you become one of those things. Being a husband and a father, those are both great things. Those are, those are very, very good things. And Jesus was neither. Right? And the best we can tell, neither was Paul. Two relatively significant men in the Bible. So the idea of picking one aspect of a man's life in Scripture and calling it a command or calling it the standard... It falls apart pretty quickly when we think about it much at all. 
right? You may hear somebody say, like, well, David was a strong warrior, so men should be. Yeah, he was. Uh, and that attribute in particular was actually the reason God said he wasn't allowed to build the temple. Right? He was also an adulterer and a murderer. Where do you draw the line? <laughs> At what point was that that he stopped being a, a man to emulate? Or how about Samson was a big, strong man. He, saved, he helped God's people. That's manly, right? But he also killed a lot of people. Like, not, not in a just way, either. He just killed a lot of people. And he eventually got himself killed because of a woman that he didn't want to stop sleeping with that he wasn't married to. Again, we need to figure out where we draw the line if we're going to look for specific figures in, in Scripture and say that that is a prescription of masculinity. Or maybe, maybe you've heard people in our culture on the other side of, of things because we, we've seen a pendulum swing a lot of times in our culture. We'll go one way and then we'll swing hard the other way. It's just how we are as humans. So you may have heard that you know, real men are not aggressive. right? They're sensitive. They're in touch with their emotions. Or maybe real men should be highly refined, right? They should be intellectual. They should be well-groomed. They should be well-dressed, all of these things. That's a real man, right? But again, look at David. <laughs> Some people say, look at him. Yeah, he was a poet and a musician. That, yeah, he's very in touch with his emotions. He was wise and refined as a king. He was also a military leader, a strong fighter, killed a giant on his own when everyone else was too afraid to even try. So listen, um, maybe, maybe you are a man, we'll zoom out to more modern, modern ideas. Maybe you are a man and you really like sports or cars or woodworking or fixing things or whatever, insert whatever stereotypically masculine thing that you are interested in. If that's you, that's great. That's awesome, good for you. But biblically speaking, those are interests, right? Those are hobbies. They're great, those are great things. But they are not defining measures of masculinity. They are not. Maybe, maybe you're a man in the room and you really pride yourself on your emotional intelligence, right? Or your style or your intellect or any of these things that we, that we value a lot in modern culture. Those are all great things too, right? But those are just attributes of you as a person. Those are just pieces of your personality. And while they are great, they are not benchmarks of what it means to be a man. So uh, does that mean that we should automatically just throw out every stereotype about men and say that they're all invalid? Um, not necessarily. Remember, I, I said that they are sometimes based on trends, and that's okay, but it does mean that we need to think really critically so that we can distinguish between stereotypes or tendencies and biblical guidance. We need to be able to distinguish between those two things. And once we're able to discern some of those things, then we can figure out where we may actually be elevating some of those stereotypes and tendencies over what the Bible has to say. And then we can start to look at what the next component is uh, of masculinity today. And I think it's recognizing sinful masculine tendencies. We should be recognizing sinful masculine tendencies. So every person, everyone has natural tendencies and inclinations. That is just part of being human, right? But what's even more important to recognize is that each and every person is also impacted by sin. 
all of us are. We live in a broken world, and none of us are exempt from that reality. None of us. And so a huge part of living in biblical masculinity is recognizing which of your tendencies may actually be sinful as a man. Recognizing your tendencies and repenting of them where you are living in sin or where you are inclined towards sin. So there's two key passages that, that people often talk about when, when talking about uh, masculinity in the Bible. And both of these passages, I would argue, are speaking directly to this idea, to the idea that we all have inclinations and tendencies, and some of those end up resulting in sinful behavior. So the Bible specifically mentions men in, the, in these passages that we're about to read and says uh, they are prone to anger, that they are prone to quarrelsomeness and disputing. They have issues with self-control, among other things. Uh, so I'm going to put these on the screen, then we'll unpack them a little bit. So 1 Timothy 2.8, we read it at the beginning, says, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. And then Titus 2, 6 through 8 says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So, in this passage, or in both of these passages, Paul is, is looking at and speaking to men in general as he is noticing some tendencies that many, not all, he didn't say all, that many of them have. So Paul is speaking and noticing tendencies that a lot of men has. So notice, though, these are not exclusive to men, just because he is addressing men in this passage. Does, does Paul also say, uh, and also, women should not pray? I don't think so. Uh, women should angrily dispute. Doesn't say that either. Women should not be self-controlled and should not have integrity. I don't think he's saying that. I don't think that that's an argument we can make. That's a really tough argument to make, especially if you consider most of anything else Jesus taught. Right? If you just read through the fruits of the Spirit and just think about how that is to all followers of Jesus. But what he's doing here is he is listing sinful tendencies that he notices a lot of men are especially prone to. So if you are a man in the room and you do not struggle with these things, that's great. That's awesome. Less sin is what we're going for. So you've got a leg up. That's great. But you might struggle with other things, or you probably do. But I do think that a lot of men do have a tendency to struggle with these things in particular. So at a biological level, even, men have higher levels of testosterone. There's tons of studies that have shown that that can lead to higher levels of aggression or anger or assertiveness or all these different things. Again, not every man is prone to this. Stereotypes are not automatically true across the board, but they are based on tendencies, and they're based on some majorities over time. And so I, that is what Paul is speaking to in these passages, things that some men that he sees are especially prone to. So he, he is saying, hey, instead of doing that thing where you're really quick to anger and you're arguing with each other and you're disputing with each other, you should, you should pray instead. 
When you feel those things coming up, you should pray. Instead of being impulsive, you should, you should practice self-control. Right? He is saying, hey, instead of automatically following whatever inclinations that you feel, you should repent of those things that lead you to sin and instead look to God. That is, that's what he's telling them to do. And we should be doing this in every aspect of our lives. Every aspect of life. We have got to look at our own personal inclinations and our own tendencies and whatever society tells us is masculine or whatever society tells us our inclination should be. And we have to ask the question, is this portraying Christ-likeness? Right? There are so many cultural stereotypes, too, that about men that are incredibly harmful. But because they are so common, they are still widely accepted, despite the harm that they cause. But the idea of boys will be boys doesn't really hold much weight in the eyes of God. Right? So here's a modern example uh, based off uh, just observational things that I have. I think it does relate a little bit to what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy, but this is more observational. In 21st century America, where we live right now, a belligerent and overbearing male boss might be annoying, but in most fields it is completely accepted, or assumed even. Men tend to be, like we said, not always, but tend to be more aggressive or can display, as Paul says, anger and disputing, especially in the workplace. So a man using his position of authority to make another person feel small or another person feel insignificant or afraid or manipulated, that may be industry standard, but it is by no means a biblical expression of masculinity. Right? And if you are a follower of Jesus and you feel social pressures to behave that way as a man or you feel that pull in yourself, an inclination towards that in yourself, you are called to reject those ideas, to repent of that behavior, and instead look for ways to love and serve like Christ in those contexts. That would be a masculine thing to do. So another uh, observation from our culture today. I think it is assumed, unfortunately, that men are just going to sexually objectify people. It's just what happens. People are just going to say, oh, you know men. That's how they are. That's the baseline. Why repress what you're inclined to do, you know? Why bother trying to exercise self-control when you can just run with whatever your mind and body has to say? But participating in that behavior, even if it's a natural tendency, is an outright rebellion against what men are called to in Scripture. So while it may be a cultural norm or an expectation even, biblical expressions of masculinity, masculinity would be to reject that tendency in yourself. Right? There is no situation in which objectifying another person is going to point people back to God. There's not. And so we are instead invited to practice self-control. We are invited to see other people as fellow human beings worthy of dignity and respect. And we're invited to not only change our own internal dialogue, but to speak out against the objectification of others, regardless of cultural normativity. So we should be constantly scrutinizing our own inclinations and looking at ourselves, not through the lens of social or cultural acceptability, but through the lens of Scripture. 
right? And, and this is an opportunity, it often presents an opportunity for repentance by turning away from some of those tendencies that end up in sinful behavior in ourselves. So that's something that we are invited to do. But sometimes, completely turning away from a tendency or a behavior is not the only option, right? And that leads us to, to the third component, and that is curbing every interest and inclination towards Christ-likeness. Every interest and inclination towards Christ-likeness. Sometimes that looks like repenting of outright sinful behavior. But I mentioned earlier, all of us are created uniquely with interests and inclinations and desires. That is just in us. A lot of those things, like we said, often become corrupted uh, in some way because we live in a broken world and we are all affected by sin and brokenness. But many of those inclinations and desires are instilled in us by our creator. They are not, by default, bad things. So when those inclinations are expressed in a way that elevates selfishness or arrogance or hostility or any other sinful expression, we are called to reconsider. Right? And, and when men take those aspects of themselves and, and instead use those things as a means of reflecting attributes of God to the world and pointing people towards him, that can be a beautiful expression of masculinity. Absolutely. So let's say, for example, uh, I mentioned it briefly, but let's say you're interested in sports. Great. You love reading about sports. You love watching sports. You love talking about sports. All of the things that relate to sports, you are here for it. And that is a completely morally neutral thing at the baseline. The Bible says absolutely nothing about whether men should or should not like sports. It's not in there. Now, imagine with me that your love of sports also evolves into a desire to coach sports. Great. That's awesome. Maybe you've got a, a child who is starting to play on a sports team or something, and you decide to step into that role, and you start coaching Little League Baseball. That's what we're going to go with. It's an example off the top of my head. All right, I'm going to give you two scenarios. Scenario one, uh, you think the current coach of your son's Little League team, the Tigers, is about as effective as hot garbage, right? He is just not pushing these six-year-olds hard enough. <laughs> Come on. They're not nearly hard enough to reach their extremely limited yet invaluable potential. <laughs> right? Contrary to their, to their Sandlot namesake, for anyone who didn't get the reference, the Tigers keep losing, and your frustration continues to grow. Right? So you valiantly offer to step in. You offer your expertise, and you oust that sorry excuse of a coach. And you start working, right? Spring training doesn't hold a candle to what you are putting these kindergartners through. <laughs> and you get results, right? The Tigers get better and better, and they, you mercilessly grind them into a highly refined machine. They soar to the top. So after you go and you just demolish the other team, you go out for drinks with the rest of your coaches after the championship, you proceed to roast that old garbage coach that used to be for this team, uh, talk about his ineffectiveness, you gloat about how much better your gang of six-year-olds is than the other ones, 
You go home to rest easy knowing that you have proven once and for all you are indeed the greatest coach to ever live. Yeah. All right, scenario two. Your kid is on the Tigers, uh, and one of the coaches mentions that they're having some, having some trouble with the team. They could use some help with the team. And you decide to step in uh, because you see an incredible opportunity to spend some more time with your kid uh, as well as an immediate opportunity to connect with some other parents. And you know for a fact some of the kids on that team probably don't get much positive attention from male adults in their life. So you make it a point to get to know some of these kids. You make it a point to get to know some of the parents on the other team. You offer encouragement to the kids. You offer praise for every single kid that is on that team. By the end of the season, you've won a couple more games, absolutely. But every single person on that team feels loved, they feel cared about, they feel invested in, they feel like they're part of a great team. The kids and some of the parents even have developed friendships that they're never going to forget because of the impact that you had on that team. It's so much more valuable than the championship. So one of those, I would say, is an example of building your own kingdom, building your own pride and building your ego. But the other, I think, is a really cool example of building God's kingdom. Right? Both of these are an example of a man who loves sports stepping in to coach a little league team. But I think that one of them is an example of cultural masculinity. I would say that it probably fits the, fits the bill for that. But one of them is an example of biblical masculinity, I think. So maybe we'll, we'll go through some other scenarios pretty quickly. Maybe you are a man uh, who, who really wants to own a truck. That's great. It's morally neutral, I hope, because that's what I drive. <laughs> uh, we won't talk about environmentally neutral, but morally, at the top baseline, it's neutral. Um, now, do you want to own a truck because it's what real men do, right? Or maybe because you feel like it's a status symbol for you. You feel like an internal need to feel bigger and stronger than other people. I don't know that intimidation is a biblical value that we should be striving for. Uh, so maybe uh, if you decide, oh, I've got to have a truck, but I absolutely have to have a brand new V8 supercharged Hemi that's $75,000, uh, and I'm going to put my family in a really bad financial position to have it. Is that a good way to love your family like Ephesians 5 says, uh, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Or maybe... Could you make a reasonable financial decision because that desire can be used in a Christ-like way? Maybe you have seen people in your life or you have seen times in life where people could really benefit from someone freely offering to help them where they otherwise would have had to pay ridiculous amounts of money or go through logistical nightmares or all other kinds of issues uh, just to get someone to do work for them or with them. But you know if you have a truck, you can be that person to offer that assistance and not charge them a penny, right? So one of those, I would argue, is a selfish and unbiblical motivation for owning a truck. But the other could be a very biblical motivation for it. 
You could. Uh, maybe you have a desire to, to consistently work out and exercise as a man, build a stronger body. Is it because you primarily want to attract as many people as possible or to get more attention from as many people as possible? Do you feel a need to convince yourself that you're just better than people around you? Or do you maybe have a desire to be physically healthy and to, to be a good steward of the body that you have been given? Right? Maybe despite it being something that's difficult to do, you know that it benefits your mental health and your well-being to consistently exercise, so you prioritize it, despite it being hard for you, because you're trying to care for yourself well. That could be a great motivation. And even with interests that I would say are less stereotypically masculine, it's the same thought process. Right? Do you have a really strong desire within yourself to create art, whether it's visual or, or musical or any other form of expression? You just have this deep desire in you to do that. Uh, is it because you want to feel validated by people's praise or by their recognition? Or, or is it because that you'll f you feel like you'll attract the certain kind of people that you want attention from in your life? Or can you use that to, to healthily express the depth of your thoughts and emotions? Could it be a medium where you are able to put to page things that other people have difficulty articulating and help them process through what they're going through in life? Are you wanting to use your unique gifts to help, help people process the difficulties of the world around them? Can you create something that's beautiful and, and is a reflection of the beautifully artistic nature of our creator and, and put some of his attributes on display? Or maybe, do you, do you love uh, meticulously designing the space in which you live? Or, or do you have a passion for, for cooking or, or anything in that realm? Is, is it so you can feel impressive to others who enter your space? So, so you can invite people in to just ooh and ah over your taste and your talents? Or can you use those desires and those passions to... to create a space that is hospitable for people, a place where people can come and feel safe and loved and cared for and seen and heard? Can you make delicious food and a beautiful home so that when people enter your space, they feel like they belong, right? They feel like they can just rest and receive love. They can receive service with no strings attached. It's the same way that Jesus welcomes us in. That could be a really beautiful way to express some of your inclinations and desires. Or maybe do you have a desire to be a stay-at-home dad? Right? Is it, is it because uh, participating in the workforce just doesn't sound all that fun? Or maybe having a career just sounds hard and you'd prefer to do something easier or that you think is easier. Not. Uh... Or maybe you're just like, I think I'd prefer to just hang out, actually, instead of work. Or is it because maybe your wife really values her career? She's worked really, really hard, and she's put in tons of effort, and she wants to continue pursuing it after you have a child. So you decide to lay aside your desires and your preferences for your job and your career so that she has the freedom and opportunity to pursue hers. 
It could be a very biblical motivation, but it can also be a very self-centered and selfish motivation. And the list could go on, right? But here's my point. The biblical instruction to men is not to be more masculine. It is not. The biblical command is for you to become more Christ-like as a man in the areas of your life where you are especially prone to not be Christ-like. Right? Christ-likeness is our goal. And so I, I've got three uh, just primary hopes this morning in sharing all of these things with you. Um, I mentioned the first one at the beginning. One hope uh, that I have is that all of the women in this room would be able to hear and understand more of what it, more of what it means for men uh, to be biblically masculine. And, and the hope is that you, would, uh, that you would be able to use that to encourage where men in your life may need encouragement and also call to repentance where men in your life need to repent. Where they need to choose to reject unchristlikeness and, and, and call them to choose Christlikeness uh, in favor of whatever ideal they've constructed for themselves. It's my first hope. My second hope is that uh, this offers some men, maybe all men, but hopefully at least some men in this room, that it offers you encouragement and freedom in your life to express yourself as a man created in God's image. Right? Just because there may be aspects of your life that don't align with certain cultural stereotypes of masculinity, that does not make you less of a man. It doesn't. Uh, certainly, if there are areas of your life that don't reflect Christ-likeness, you're invited to repent of those just like everyone else. But just because you may not fit perfectly into some arbitrary border that somebody drew up along the way, you are still an image bearer of God. You are. And I hope that it's helpful for you to hear. And I feel like it, it, it should be for some. I, I know for me personally, it's been incredibly helpful and incredibly freeing. Because I've had to deal with, with different elements of this at different points in my life. Right? For, for most of my teenage years, very briefly, uh, I had a very unhealthy view of relationships, uh, especially with, with women in my life or girls in my life. And so I made plenty of bad decisions uh, when it came to dating, and I had really unhealthy views. Uh, towards the end of my time in high school, uh, I, I decided that that needed to stop. Uh, so I, I had some really, really helpful men in my life who, who communicated to me that, hey, as a Christian, the goal of dating... Uh, is to determine if that's a person that you are going to, to marry. That is the purpose, to discern if, the, if marriage is the end goal. And I was not ready for that, not at all. So I said, I need to not be doing any of this until that is something that I'm ready to consider. Uh, but the people at my school did not see it that way, not at all. They saw me, and they knew that I, uh, that I did not want to try to date the people at my school the people in my class. I didn't want to date everyone like they did. It made no sense to them, right? So to them, uh, guys want to date girls. That just is what it is. And so for whatever reason, if you're saying you don't want to, that means you're not a man, right? That was the only explanation in their mind about, about me and my decision. 
And then they picked apart other aspects of my life that they felt like weren't manly enough. Right? They, they said, oh, you don't like watching sports? Which I don't at all. Uh, you're, not, you're not manly. Men like watching sports. Right? Uh, you drive a Volkswagen Bug, which I did. Uh, that's not a man's car. And it wasn't like a cool one. It was like a new one at the time. And it was not a cool vintage one. Um, you don't want to join us in, in mocking other people in, in our school or being incredibly derogatory towards the girls in our class. You like music made for girls. You're weak. You are not manly. Right? You're whatever else. Insert whatever they wanted to say. Right? And over time, it weighs heavier and heavier on you. And it feels like it's reinforced by, by some of the cultural stereotypes that were circulating around me. So that added fuel to all of the insecurities that I already felt about myself. And I couldn't help but think that, you know, they're probably right. Right? I was the outlier. So there had to be something wrong with me. Like, I, I was the problem. But there is so much freedom and so much hope that is found in a better identity. Right? I, was, I was eventually able to see that I was not less of a man than the other guys just because I didn't fit their mold. Right? I was created with the inclinations and desires and interests that I have, and I am tasked with using those things to bring glory to God in light of my identity that is found in Jesus. Right? So there, there was so much hope that I found in, in who I was and who I felt like I was created as. And there is, there is so much hope for you in Christ. Right? The things that you like, the things that you don't like, those things do not determine your value or your worth or your masculinity. They don't. And my, my third hope this morning uh, is for anyone who, who's ever been a part uh, of subjecting someone else to your personal thoughts and assumptions about what masculinity should be. Right? And it's that you would see that there's freedom for, for you, too, in Christ. Right? Jesus is good news on both sides of that conversation. It is not just the people in my story that made me feel terrible about who I was and how I acted that needed to repent. Also, the way that I responded, I was called to repentance. And the ways that I responded after that, years of my life have been spent uh, honestly mocking and tearing down people with different interests than me and different tendencies than me in an attempt to make me feel better about myself and the things that I liked. I am, I am more of an emotional and sensitive person than a lot of people, so I have taken to mocking men that I feel like are calloused or insensitive or emotionally distant. It makes me feel better about my inclinations. Or I've made fun of guys who, who like watching sports, said it's just a stupid game, right? How could you care so much about that? And it was a sinful expression in myself of trying to justify how I felt my insecurities and projecting that onto other people. And the list could go on, right? And in those moments, I am equally as guilty. I am equally as wrong as anyone else in my life had been because all that I was doing was elevating my own personal convictions over someone else's and saying that they were less than because of it. That's what I was doing. When in reality, 
we should all be looking to Jesus as our example and as our hope. That is what we are doing. Our identity can never be and was never meant to be found in our masculinity. Our identity is meant to be found in Jesus. Right? He gives us purpose and hope. He gives us an example of what it means to live a life for God. So our identity is completely secure in Jesus, and that security is what gives us freedom to live our lives as the men that we were created to be. It gives us, it gives us freedom to reshape and remold every aspect of ourselves that has been damaged by the effect of sin to be more aligned with him and his goals. So I want to end today um, just by taking a little bit of time for us to reflect. So Baron can come on up. Um, but I, w- I want us to take some time uh, just to, to respond and reflect uh, where, where you are. So if that, uh, if that looks like uh, sitting and praying or journaling or, or whatever that looks like for you, um, I'm going to give you a little bit of time. I've, I've got three questions for you to consider um, as, as we end. And uh, then I'll, I'll pray at the end. So I invite you guys... Whatever that looks like for you to, to, to prepare for that, um, just want to end with these three questions. So the first, first question for you um, is just, in what ways have I let culture define masculinity for me more than the Bible? So I'm going to give you guys a few minutes uh, for you to, to, to pray or to write or to process, whatever that looks like for you is we have some music playing, um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll bring up the next question after we've had a little bit of time. Second, uh, in what ways have you or, or have I held men in my life, uh, whether that's friends or coworkers, brothers, sons, any of those things? In what ways have I held men in my life to cultural stereotypes rather than the scriptures?
last one. We, I mentioned uh, briefly earlier the idea of the, this pendulum swing that we often make from, from one side to the other. Um, so sometimes our tendency as humans is to have a rebellious nature. Uh, and what can happen sometimes uh, in response to ways that we feel like someone is telling us we, we should be or ways that we should act, uh, we instead rebel and go the opposite direction. Uh, now, sometimes going against what culture says is motivated by scripture, and that is a good thing. Uh, but I think sometimes we also need to do the work to identify where we may actually be more motivated by rebellion than scripture. Um, so the last, the last one is, in what ways have I been more motivated by rebellion against masculine stereotypes than I have the scriptures? <laughs>